keep the sun out. So, Aaron, welcome. Um, I'm glad to uh, have seen you last Saturday. And we just got started talking about criticism. And that um, I would go so far as to say that the Buddha was really, really big on this issue of criticism and how to stop it. That in fact, um, word uh, in the Pali is Silabata Paramasa. Sila there is like the rules. Mm -hmm. And that what we do is we attach to these rules. And, and, and for some children, following the rules keeps them alive. And so yeah. we really do have to follow the rules. Now, the point is, is that it's not the rules that are on the signs or on the post or actually in the books. It's the rules that we carry around in our head. And so we wind up being very critical of ourselves, critical of the environment, critical of everything. And that uh, this gets started somewhere around the age of three or four. It's really heavy duty by the age of six when we start school. Because then we're no longer uh, mommy's tender, in tender infant. We're either mommy's little helper or we're the little bastard who doesn't cooperate. Okay. Go do your homework. Learn your ABCs. I don't care whether you're enjoying your life anymore or not. You got to learn to read. Pick up your toys. Pick up your room. Do what you're told to do. And so we all get into that style. We all get into that mentality. But there is something really, really important to that, and is that is, is that it was new. It was newly added to the child when the child was first born. We were completely dependent, a complete victim to our environment. But we survived because we were nurtured and cared for by mommy. Didn't even know what a tit was until it was popped in our face. So all of these instincts catch in. And um, so in the beginning, um, the mother and the child bond together. There's actually uh, chemicals that they know about. And the example would be that all of the nurses on the maternity ward, they all live and die for being in the room at the time, not of the birth, but of the meeting of the child. After the baby is uh, first newly born, somebody will go clean it up, and somebody else will clean up mom wheel her to her bedroom, and then the baby comes in with a big celebration while that bonding happens. I am the bomb mommy, and this is my job to take care of, and I love it. Okay, so that's the bonding. The nurturing starts then. Unfortunately, we get used to it, and then it stops. And we all, for the rest of our lives, pine for that being nurtured and taken care of and everything we do is okay. By the time we're four or six, we're not nurtured anymore. We're told what to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that... The um, dumb animal. <laughs> pardon? The dumb animal that gets told what to do. <laughs> Precisely right. We all become d dumb animals that do what we're told to do. But the worst part about that is, is that the dumb animal not only does not have a choice about doing what he's told to do, he also does not have a choice about how to feel how to do it. That he, if he were gave, given a project in a nurturing way, then he might want to do the project. Then he can enjoy his work. Not taught that way. Taught to do it no matter what. You sit down and you do that homework right now. You concentrate on it. No more dilly-dallying around. No more playing. I mean, we've all heard that kind of thing. <clears throat> and so uh, it's, a, it's a double whammy to lose the nurturing and get piled on with the criticism. 
So we begin to have those habits of criticizing, criticizing, criticizing ourselves, criticize others, get criticized by everyone, and that we don't have any more bonding. Okay, so this is the state of being that we wind up going up into. And no one really ever comes out of that victimhood, the twin victimhood, one not being able to take care of ourselves and have to be nurtured. And then the second um, is the criticism, being told what to do and never wind up enjoying it. So these two things we carry into adulthood. And um, it's the teaching of the Buddha is how we can drop that stuff simply by uh, catching the fact that we are criticizing ourselves, criticizing others, and start nurturing ourselves and nurturing others. <clears throat> That's the whole secret to the teaching of the Buddha right there. That's the whole show. Then, in fact, there's a sutta where the Buddha talks about uh, Ananda comes up after having been with Sarathutta and says that friendship is half the Dhamma. And the Buddha corrects him and says, no, friendship is not half the Dhamma. It's the whole Dhamma. That's all there is. But it's a twin kind of complex. That's why it looks like half, because normally we think of the word of friendship as being friendly with other people. But the, the big deal is, is to become friends with ourselves, start nurturing ourselves, and stop the criticism. Now, uh, the time when we're most likely to criticize ourselves is when we catch ourselves doing something that we don't want to do. So Goenka has a very favorite phrase that he uses or he used uh, and is recorded and repeated often. And that little phrase is, when the mind wanders away from the breath, Never mind, start again. And the reason for that is, is that the students, when they catch their mind wandering away from the breath, they don't never mind, start again. They beat the tar out of themselves. Oh, you're supposed to be meditating now. This is hard. Maybe this is not a good place to go. Maybe this is not my day. Maybe the teacher is no good. Maybe this is a bad method. Maybe, 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 but I am hard on myself. Other than being nurturing and gentle on myself. Oh, the mind wandered away. Never mind. Let's just go back. Start again. Okay. That would be then the correct practice, but very few people start practicing correctly because they go according to their habits of being critical. And so um, we have to actually practice then being friends with ourselves. Warts and all. That's the thing that's really interesting because uh, many people uh, are introduced to Buddhism things called precepts thou shalt not steal thou shalt not kill I mean it sounds in the minds of the most people very Christian life with the Ten Commandments okay yes very critical kinds of things but really in the actual teachings of the Buddha it is um, from the perspective of once the mind is clean and bright and pure and we don't want anything and we're friendly with ourselves and others, then we're very unlikely to hurt them, very unlikely to steal from them. We're very unlikely to um, uh, <clears throat> uh, lie, cheat, steal, any of that kind of stuff. But we're very likely to behave that way because of the critical nature and the capitalism, okay, which is a kind of... Um, uh, actually, capitalism is very much a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You can see that we got into that kind of mentality um, actually quite instinctively. The instinct, first off, the most important instinct is the self-preservation instinct. And that's where fear comes up. And most of the time, we're dealing with other people as if we were afraid of them 
That's why we've got to compete with them. If we weren't afraid of them, we wouldn't bother to compete. I've already won. Don't bother to compete. So, uh, uh, like a, in any sport, let us say chess, a national or world brand champion, uh, when he plays uh, a game of chess uh, with a child or a, a student, it doesn't matter because he could win that game easily. What matters is, is that now you're being a mentor and a coach and you want to let the child win sometimes so that the child can get the feeling of winning and then get interested in life, chess. I've actually done that many times by teaching my daughter checkers. I was too good at checkers. <laughs> and because of that, um, I would give her moves back. I would show her all. Oh, if you move there, I'm going to take three pieces. you got to watch what you're doing on the board and that kind of thing. So we, we don't, if we do... Uh, train our students that way, then they will learn. But if they, uh, we don't, if the child is not enjoying what he's doing, he's going to quit. He's not going to be very good at it. And then we have to really push him to get him to do it. An example of that would be a young child who's taking piano lessons. If the child actually enjoys it, if he can learn one or two songs and get interested in playing the piano, that's why it was so popular, chopsticks, because it's really easy to, to learn to play. And if a kid can learn to play chopsticks, he'll like it so much, he might want to start actually doing the work of learning scales and core bangering and that kind of stuff. Right? But if a kid takes a year or two of piano lessons and doesn't like it, then it's a drudgery. And his mother will probably stop paying because she sees that the kid's not getting anything out of the piano. Yeah, I have experience with uh, with a child in that way. <laughs> so, um, if we can then begin a practice of changing the structure or uh, turning the tables on that kind of education that we've all received, that's what the practice of Anapanasati is all about. That basically the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha are very, very simple. He says it this way. He says is that I only teach one thing, both formally and now, I teach only one thing, and that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. And that um, even though the uh, Westerners have gotten dukkha and just made it a great big, huge thing they call suffering, most of our dukkha is not actually suffering. It's just... Um, dissatisfaction mm -hmm. that we put up with a whole lot of stuff that's not really up to our scratch so we criticize it but we put up mm -hmm. with it anyway okay mm -hmm. and the teachings of the Buddha is saying no we don't put up with our dissatisfactions we catch them turn them around turn that stuff around uh, uh, by, by recognizing that when the mind wanders away from the breath, that's the time to congratulate yourself for seeing that the mind has wandered away from the breath, rather than blessing at ourselves because it did. And could I ask a question about that? So, the dissatisfaction is it is is it purely dissatisfaction in in our our attitude or is, would you also consider you know like the standards that we expect of the world if we're dissatisfied with them is that also the dissatisfaction any kind of dissatisfaction is just because it ultimately it's a, it's our mind that's in that state right right ultimately the mind is in a state of dissatisfaction no matter what was the source of the dissatisfaction mm -hmm. that in fact um, the Buddha strongly recommends that we begin our practice in seclusion, that we get away from the world and all of our dissatisfactions out there. And so we sit quietly, close the eyes, and start just monitoring what's going on inside the mind and inside the body. Start looking at what's going on. 
And there we find that the root of the dissatisfaction is almost always inside, that we're dissatisfied with ourselves. Not friends, we're not nurturing. And so when students recognize that their mind has wandered away instead of nurturing themselves, <laughs> they complain, they criticize. And we could, we're very critical of ourselves. Why are we that? Well, we were taught that from childhood. We were criticized, criticized by our parents. So we learned how to criticize ourselves by listening to our critics. Uh, our parents criticize. And it's especially uh, dissatisfying when you have co contradictory competing rules, right? <laughs> you can be dissatisfied with both sides thing, of that's it. Right, is, is that there's often, uh, there's so many rules that they are contradictory. Like be friendly, but don't talk about yourself or, <laughs> you know, different things that could uh, compete. Right. Those are a lot of the social conventions, but another mm -hmm. thing that we can see that's actually quite common is, is that uh, you get good advice. And that good advice, uh, there's good advice everywhere. The problem is, is that we don't remember to take the good advice when we need to take that advice the most. Okay, like look uh, both ways before you cross the street, right? And yet the kid's playing ball and he's now in the heat of the game and he's not going to look twice. He's just going to run out in the road to catch that ball, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> the other side of it, though, is, is that when we do get good advice, we often turn that into a rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we make new rules with the good advice that we've had, rather than uh, learning when and where to apply that good advice. Mm -hmm. And if we don't remember to take the good advice, then we don't take the good advice. Or in that moment, if we don't remember that advice, then we're unlikely to behave in that direction. So the practice really is in a way twofold. That is, number one, is, is part of practicing with the concept of moving the critical thinking and start into the nurturing thinking, while at the same time, let's not make that a rule. Let's not make that, uh, that good advice into a rule because when you're not nurturing yourself, when you're critical, then you'll be critical of that too. <laughs> right. So, um, in the polytext, this issue of critical versus nurturing, I take those two words out of um, Eric Burns' um, transactional analysis, which we'll talk about uh, a bit. But in the, in the teachings of the Buddha, there's a, a wide variety of language that's used for that. One of them is, is that the critical mind is an, an obstructed mind, that the mind is obstructed or it is hindered, that these are the hindrances or this is this criticism. Um, that we get restless, we get worried, get uh, agitated, uh, we want things, etc., like that. Uh, and so we're in a way critical because we don't have what we want. And so um, another language that's used um, is wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. But wholesome and, and unwholesome is used quite a lot. The Pali word, by the way, is kusala and akusala. And the word kusala actually comes from a very, very heavy grass, like lemongrass, long blades, very thick, serrated also. And in the time of the Buddha, they would take this um, kusala grass and dry it under a heavy weight, like a log or a brick or something. And then it was suitable to be used as a knife. You can cut cloth, you can cut bread, you can cut all kinds of things with this. It's a very easy cheap knife, and you don't have any grasp on iron around. The grass itself will be cuttable, okay? And so when we say wholesome, that means that we can see into it, we can cut through it, we can diagnose it, 
okay? Virtually mm-hmm. diagnostics or diagnosing, okay? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The diag is the cutting so that right. you know it, right? Right, sure. Right, you take it apart. You isolate the damage, et cetera, like that. So this is what mm-hmm. we mean by kusala versus a kusala. Uh, which means just leaving those unwholesome things unwholesome without diagnosing them. Not, um, let us mm-hmm. say, uh, using discernment. Okay. Uh, another way that we talk about it is uh, in the sense of the nurturing is to gladden the mind, to brighten the mind, make the mind bright and shining. So we've got obstructions, we've got hindrances, we've got uh, wholesome versus unwholesome, and we've got brightening the mind. These are the words that are used in um, the literature, but I'm also adding the words nurturing and critical. Okay. Now the interesting thing about the nurturing part that most people think is, is that, oh, I can be nurturing to myself once I uh, pass the critical test, I've got to get up to scratch first. I've got to meet my standards, and then I can get my nurture. That my love for myself is conditional. Okay, and what we're actually teaching here, and this is such an important thing, is to, continue, to start taking yourself unconditionally loving unconditionally being friends with ourselves. Even when we catch ourselves screwing up, we don't criticize that, we nurture it in the sense of, well, I'm glad that I caught myself screwing up there. I could see it. And then make that more uh, salient than the the screw up. Exactly. The the nurturing part. Catching the screw up is is more valuable, more Mm -hmm. wholesome, than just screwing up and hating that you screwed up. That in fact, if we don't like the screw up, we'll try to hide it. Right. We'll hide it from ourselves in the state of denial, right. and we'll hide it from others in the state of uh, uh, lying. To others. Or try to blame somebody else for why we screwed up. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It wasn't me. <laughs> Instead of accepting that we screw up naturally. That every toddler who's learning to walk is going to fall down a whole bunch of times. If they were critical, and every, I mean, if you were critical of the child, 18 months old, just beginning to stand up, and as soon as he falls down the first time without even getting one step going, and we spank the child because he can't walk yet, that child may never learn to walk. Okay, the same thing true with piano. That if the child is enjoying the mistakes that he's making and he's still getting through the piece, then he's enjoying it. But if the teacher stops him and, and spanks his fingers with a ruler because he missed a note, now he's not enjoying it. Okay, And so here we are as an adult banging our own fingers with rulers because that's what happened to us as a child. Yeah. And we're not seeing the next thing that's happening while we're criticizing ourselves. Exactly so. All right. So this is the actual um, aspect. So let's get into it from that quality of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, because most in the West, because they're already in that critical mind state, they think that they have to look at the Dukkha, see the Dukkha, inspect the Dukkha, cut the dukkha open and see how bad the dukkha is and see that this dukkha is related to that dukkha and that dukkha is going down the dukkha rabbit hole and down at the bottom of it is fear, disgust, despair, anguish, uh, and a strong desire to get out of it. Well, you already had the strong desire to get out of it before you ever started practicing in the first place. So there's no reason for us to use our practice to take ourselves into some dark night of the soul or whatever they want to call it, okay? But in fact, the right way to practice is to come out of the criticism and congratulate ourselves immediately, which actually means then we go from dukkha immediately, avoid it, and come into the state of um, the third noble truth. 
uh, being free from the dukkha, which is actually the Pali word for that is sukha. Sukha and dukkha are opposites. And so if we can uh, practice getting the mind into a state of sukha, uh, then that's the practice. That's the whole thing. Uh, and one of the important qualities that we have to understand is, is that the dukkha is not given to us. It's not a tsunami that God Almighty makes or thunder and lightning or any of the uh, things that what the bully does, right, is not the source of dukkha. The source of dukkha is, is that we don't like the bully. We don't like it. We want him to do something else. We want him to go pester some other kid or anything like that. But it's the fact that we don't like it. That's the dissatisfaction right there. The dissatisfaction comes from my feelings. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so the, uh, there's a lot of teaching about feelings because the mind is the forerunner and the way that we're thinking is going to affect our feelings and vice versa in the sense that in many, many sports and other things, if you can get your opponent angry, then you can defeat him because he's, uh, uh, when, when they're angry, that means that the whole body fills with the blood and they're not thinking much anymore. That in fact, uh, in the 1972 uh, World Chess Championship, Bobby Fischer won, oh, uh, Boris Spassky, they don't have much of this in the literature, but in some of the books about it, they will point out that um, Bobby Fischer did any and everything he could to um, irritate Boris Spassky. One of the techniques that he uses, there's a rule that if you touch a piece in chess it, when it's your turn, you've got to move that piece. Mm. Well, Bobby Fischer would take his hand and hover over a piece but not actually touch it, okay, and just let it be there. And he was looking all over the board about to touch that piece, and then he would pick up and move another piece over here. Well, here Boris Spassky is all going in his mind about what am I going to do when he moves that piece over there, and then he moves this one. Another one that he would do is when it was Boris Spassky's turn, he would stand up, walk around, and look over Spassky's shoulder. So there you are having chess with his guy's face right there. <laughs> and he would also be late and other things like that and just completely um, um, get his opponent befuddled. You see that in court. You see that in debates. In fact, there's a thing called abhamium, uh, uh, ad hominem attacks. You're not supposed to attack the personality of your opponent mm -hmm. because that will throw him off. Right, it'll trigger him, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly, okay. So this is part of the proof, then, that we can't think straight when we're feeling bad. So in order to think straight, we've got to get out of our anger, our frustrations, and all of that. And so this is actually a great big part of the practice, is to understand that all of this dissatisfactions that we have in our lives, we create it. We manufacture it. How do we do that? Because we're in the habit of doing it. We were taught how to do that as children, and we continue with those habits our whole lives. And so some of those habits get really deeply ingrained. So and we see those things and make a change to it. Cut that stuff open. Yeah. And could you talk about the other way around where the feelings, we sort of, the feelings trigger thoughts in that sort of the, the opposite way? Right. <clears throat> you can, you can um, uh, think about the human being as a complex machine and possibly just as an example, we'll use a, um, an alarm clock, a desktop clock the old style that had gears and wheels and springs and all of that kind of stuff in it. <clears throat> and our job actually is to dismantle the clock and clean it out, take all the dust and the dirt from the cogs 
and oil the, uh, uh, the bearings, uh, the jewel bearings, et cetera, like that, and put it back together again so that it functions correctly. Because when the clock has gotten dirty, it doesn't work very well. Okay, that um, um, extra frictions and things like this, um, balance wheel gets out of balance and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, <clears throat> so in that regard, uh, with that example, we're going to actually examine the body as a unit. We're going to examine the feelings as a unit, and we're going to examine the mind as a unit, and then we're going to watch how these things fit together so we can put it all together again and recognize that the feelings affect the body, the feelings affect the mind, the body affects the feelings, the feelings affect the mind, the body affects the mind, and they're all three running and circling around one another. And we do that ignorantly. We're not aware of what's going on, not paying attention. And so this whole quality then is... And that so we're not seeing the cause and effect in that dynamic. Right. So uh, the, a really easy example then of seeing is, is that um, when the body is sick, when the body is sick, we feel bad. And because we feel bad, the mind is low. Okay, and so a sick body, but if we're wise, if we're uh, wise to that, if we can see it, then you, we can change our language about it. Oh, the body's sick, but it'll be okay. I'll get out of this. Let me lay here and enjoy that I've got no place to go and nothing to do. I can keep my mind clean, even though the body is sick. Mm -hmm. It's okay that the body is sick. We'll use that as a training tool. And in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says is that um, when we're sick, that's an excellent opportunity to practice. That's a really good time to practice if we're already skilled in practicing. If we're not skilled in practicing, then we can't practice when we're sick. But we actually have to, it's almost like going to a gym. That the, um, that the new kid that, go, that goes to the gym does not go to the very, very heavy weights to start. He starts with little weights. Starts with one or two kilogram dumbbells, and you do the reps over and over and over and over and over and over again. That repetitive quality of building the muscles is actually a major part of the practice, is that we have to repeat this over and over again because we, our whole lives, have been talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to repeat over and over again to talk ourselves into feeling good. Okay, so we've got a lot of old history. We've got a lot of old dirt. And so polishing and polishing and polishing and polishing will eventually mm -hmm. remove all of the old dirt. And the, the sort of talking ourselves into feeling good, um, is it sort of irregardless of the conditions that we're in? Well, let us say... Um, that that's not generally the case. Generally, the case is, is that when we have no skills, we can't handle anything very well. Can't even handle getting insulted, right? But as the skill level grows, we begin to handle things that we used to not being able to handle, but there's still a whole lot of stuff we can't handle yet. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in a way, the training means is that we can't just sit there with uh, sitting in private doing one kilogram dumbbell, we have to actually go to the bigger stuff and right. progress through it. So that we and, but we also can't just jump to the big stuff, right? Right. Uh, so we practice in seclusion first to be able to at least get the mind cleaned out when it's got no heavy-duty work to do. There's nothing to lift. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is just get the mind into a good state. And then we can learn to do that even when the cell phone breaks or even when the postman comes 
Right. That's the whole idea is, is that we kind of build up to it and we begin to. But we don't have a whole lot of control about what things going to happen. Anything can happen at any time. And some of it we're going to be able to handle and some of it we're not. Yeah. But as time goes on and we begin to handle some of the intermediate stuff, now we're ready to handle the really heavy duty stuff. And by handle, you mean stay satisfied. Stay satisfied even when you're at, uh, let us say, um, uh, the one standing uh, that doesn't have a gun in the firing squad. <laughs> because, in fact, yeah. we're all going to die. Everybody's yeah. going to die. You can count on it. You're going to die. You're going to get a sick, get old, and die. The Buddha is really big on illness, sickness, old age, and death. Because it happens to everybody if we're lucky. If we're not lucky, we die young. But if we're lucky, we're going to get old. And every old person gets sick. And so when we're young, if we can handle being sick, then when we're getting older, we can handle being sick. And in fact, that's why we want, as Vicky Buddha Dasa says, use sickness as an object of meditation. And it's a really excellent time to practice because there's going to be some day that you're going to get so sick, it's going to kill you. How can you handle that if you can't handle the stubbed toe? Okay, so this is actually a training for the really, really big stuff, but we do it a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and if we've got nobles around us, they'll set us up in positions to grow. Right. Put, it, put us under pressure, not enough pressure that we go into dukkha, but just enough pressure so that we can get over it and learn something, get that heavier training. It's like when the, uh, 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 our, our, our coach brings over uh, a 10-kilogram dumbbell and says, here, do this one. <laughs> and then we recognize, oh, I can do that. I am ready for it. Okay, so this is one of the reasons for being around other nobles is because they can guide us and help us as we're progressing. Uh, they don't have the same confirmation biases that we have. This is also one of the real good reasons why uh, the teaching of the Dhamma is best done on a one-on-one -on -one, uh, instruction. But look at all the stuff that really is done one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, if a kid really wants to learn an algebra, it's better for him to be there with the book and the teacher rather than sitting in the back of the class being disturbed yeah. by half the other kids that are not interested. Yeah. Uh, and so a, a great big meditation class uh, is not the best place to learn because the students, for one thing, they don't get a chance to ask the question like you do in their own Skype here. And so the Dhamma is actually best learned from a teacher who knows what he's talking about so he can guide the student easily. The problem is, is that a book, you can't get Dhamma out of a book because you get to page 96 and the book doesn't say that, hey man, you're on the wrong page here. Go back to page 6. That's what you need to do right now. Right. Um, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> right, right. Right. You're trying to pick up a dumbbell too big. <laughs> and you're going to get frustrated and angry and upset and uptight because you can't do something that you knew you couldn't do before you tried it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, moving in this direction, there is actually a method to practice. That method is actually called the Eightfold Noble Path, but guess what? The word path is a bad translation. We immediately think that it's a journey or a destination, a footpath, uh, 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 a horse pa uh, path, a trail, uh, a highway, something like that. Where in fact, it's not a path at all that way. Uh, in fact, the word way is better because we also use the word way for like a parkway or a highway, but it's also a, a method. Mm -hmm. This is the way to do it. Okay, so that's actually the, uh, uh, the Eightfold Noble Way would be a better word 
but Eightfold Noble Method actually nails it. This is something that you're doing right here, right now. It's not something that you've got to go someplace to do. Right. So I use the analogy of a door. The door is right here in front of you, and all you need is the key to the door. You put it in, you turn the latch, you push the door open. The pushing of the door open is the right um, effort. The key to it is to remember to look at what's going on or remember to turn the crank. Turn mm -hmm. that knob, okay, to change it a little bit, and then we take the effort to push that thing right open. These are actual items on the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right effort, right sati. Mm -hmm. Now, the word view is uh, misunderstood um, in the sense that we use the word view for viewpoints, world views, ways mm -hmm. of looking at things. And this is true for wrong view and ordinary right view. But this practicing kind of noble right view is not a noun, it's a verb. It's right noble viewing, booking, inspecting, mm. right here, right now. Okay. So it's not, a, it's not a conclusion or a criticism or a concept. It's an investigation. Right. It's remembering to be, to be viewing. To do that cutting. Remember mm. to do that diagnosing, to cut that thing open, to see what's in there. Okay. And that once we do, once we make that diagnosis and we cut that thing in there, we can see uh, that this is a nut to crack or this is hard or this is an unwholesome thought. And so now we take the right effort to change it from an unwholesome thought of this is hard, this is a nut, this is difficult into, oh, I've got this. I can handle this. I can do this. Everything is going in that kind of direction there's actually it's um there is a kind of universal law like gravity and that is is that what we the mind the buddha talks about it like this the mind is the forerunner the mind is the forerunner wherever the mind goes reality will follow an example of that is someone who is afraid of dogs will be the one that the dogs are barking at because they can sense that fear. Okay, so um, if we are, are creating mental thoughts like, oh, this is hard, this is difficult, I'll try, then we're already got in the mind failure. But if we bring into the mind the, uh, the, the, the mental processing of success, I could do this this is possible, then we could bring it about in actuality. This is part of the gladdening the mind from no, I can't or over me into, hey, I can do this. Mm -hmm. hey, and I then when we this. fail naturally, we don't trip over our failure as well. Right. When we become a success deep inside, then whatever we do that we used to call failures, we don't call that failures anymore. We call it an opportunity for growth. that our failures were failures because we called them failures. And so we call ourselves a failure. Right. And we have to change that attitude. We have to change that, that in fact, uh, we practice these three things of waking up to remember, be here now, to look at what the mind is doing, number two. First sati, then ditti, and then virya, to take the effort that it takes to make a change. Now, right effort has a quality to it that's quite uh, interesting. And that is, is that there is way, people practice way too much effort, put too much effort in everything. That in fact, when the child is doing his homework and mama is watching him, he puts even more effort than it takes to actually do the arithmetic. He has to struggle with it, bit his brow, uh, dull the pencil, mm -hmm. break the pencil point, you know, all of that kind of stuff happens oh, because we're working too hard. And then there is also the not working hard enough. 
And that's also done in meditation quite a lot. So students will have will uh, start because of their nature, either not work hard enough or too hard. To where right noble effort is just the least amount of work necessary to actually get the job done. Okay, so the analogy that I use there is imagine that you're standing in the road and you look over to the right and you see that there's a great big lorry, a great big truck, a semi bearing down on you at 50 meters at high speed. If we don't have enough effort, then we just let that truck run right over us. That's the Vajrayana method and they call that choiceless awareness. Right. <laughs> And then there is the Mahasi method of the noting. And that mm -hmm. is more like Popeye, the sailor man who stands there after he's taken his finish, holds his great big fist out, and gets run over by that truck. But one's right noble effort is to see the truck coming and just get out of the way, step aside, step out of the road. This is the way that we begin to understand it all. Oh, I can just get out of my own way. I don't have to run over myself. Okay? So, this is one's right effort. It's just the right amount of effort that it takes to throw that unwholesome thought out of the mind, put a wholesome thought into the mind. And when we have a wholesome thought that generally thought about what's happening right now, an unwholesome thought is generally about fussing about what happened in the past or, pre or uh, trying to figure out how to handle the future. In fact, the past and the future are very dangerous places. All kinds of bad happens uh, in the past to us already. And boy, can we plan all kinds of bad things to happen. Mm -hmm. Like this very minute, we're safe. Yeah, and if we try to plan good things, there's all kinds of doubts about whether we're able to do that. <laughs> exactly. But right here, right now, we're actually safe. And so we actually pay attention to the fact that there are no alligators, there's no frogs, there's no barking dogs, there's no militia, there is no SWAT team, there is no boogeyman, there's no bear in the closet. All of these childhood things we don't have to deal with anymore. They're not there. We can feel safe and secure. Sorry about the beeping. So this would be then wholesome language that we could use is to say there's no reason to be afraid right now. I could just sit here and just relax. Just relax. I don't have to uh, uh, have this mental concept about some train or some truck barreling down on us. If we could just let that go, load it well and let it pass by. Just throw it out, let it go, and we come back to the security and the safety of this present moment. Also in the practice, we want to practice with the body to make the body feel, if the body is uptight, tense, in pain, then the mind is going to be uptight, in, uh, in pain. And so we need to get the body situated in a natural place. You probably already know enough about Buddhism in the West to know about retreats. And those retreats are actually way over the heads of most of the students. And they have wind up with a lot of body pain because they're not used to sitting on the floor. And I wouldn't recommend sitting on the floor. But Asians do that because in the tropics, we don't need furniture. Furniture is cold weather and by the, by the culture. And so whatever posture that you're in, whether you're sitting on a chair or on the important thing is to get the body comfortable, which means we actually have to pay attention to the body. Taking long, deep breaths will help relax the body. Mindfully breathing, uh, we relax the body, we experience the body, and uh, by experiencing and finding out where the tensions are, we relax the body. This is the part of Anapanasati that's concerned with the body. The intention is to get the body relaxed and secure.
so we intentionally talk ourselves into that, getting into postures that are comfortable. Uh, and then we talk about that. All oh, the body feels really good right now. All oh, this is really good breath. And so now our thoughts about what's happening in this present moment. Because all of the trouble is either in the past or off in the future, but right now it seems okay. So this is the way we begin to practice, and then the mind will wander away, and when we catch it wandering away, oh, never mind, never mind, you're a good kid, it's okay, the mind wandered away, just come back and start again. <laughs> and yet most new students, when the mind wanders away, they actually take an opportunity to beat themselves to a frazzle. Not good enough. Oh, this is a monkey mind. Oh, I can't control this. Okay. They're controlling the thing all along. They chose to have that thought. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about about that. If if the student is is better at the meditation than the rest of the day, let's say. <laughs> When, when, when their mind's being pulled into other tasks. Um. Okay, well, here's kind of an important point. In the West, they have gotten into the habit of those very, very long sittings, like for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. But it's a much, much better way to practice is several times a day. Because then, Instead of, um, you can imagine it like that. We have spent years and years and years in hindrance. And then we're taking an hour, and part of that hour is in hindrance, and part of that hour is in uh, correct practice. And then for 23 hours, we're all hindrance all the time. The likelihood of the hindrances winning is high. So we have to practice a different way. And that is by practicing um, on a much more frequent basis. So if we're going to practice an hour, we can take that hour and do a whole lot of things with it. One of the things we can do is say, okay, we're going to practice three times a day for 20 minutes. Or we can practice four times a day for 15 minutes. We can practice six times a day for 10 minutes. Or if we're really sharp, or really need the meditation, Tim, just for five minutes, we can practice once an hour. Is there a, a danger to being really good at the one hour <laughs> and then not doing it? I've never it. met anybody who is actually very good at the one hour. Yeah. Because the mind has uh, got an attention span. The mind gets dull. When the mind gets dull, the breathing gets dull. The mind gets duller. They go into a really dull state. And when they wake out of that, they says, oh, that must have been Jonna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a really dull state. Yeah, dullness is the, uh, the habit of students who are practicing too long. It's better, in fact, to practice just long enough to get yourself into a really, really good state. Wow, you feel so good. And then get up out of meditation and practice whatever you were doing in your life in that really, really good mood. And when the good mood wears out, then let's go back and get ourselves back into a good mood. Mm. Okay, this doesn't actually take very long. Uh, uh, possibly uh, six times a day for 10 minutes would be a good place to start, knowing that I've got only this 10 minutes, and that's enough time to practice. To be to get the mind into a really good state. I can feel safe, secure, and then satisfied. So this is the way to practice, to break it up into short pieces and start practicing these three things over and over again. To remember, take a deep breath, remember, gladden the mind, remember, investigate the mind and to remove the unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in. And so we, we practice this over and over and over again with thoughts like I feel safe, I feel safe, I feel 
wow, this is good. I like this breath. Okay. These are all, by the way, nurturing thoughts also. Now, so those are those are what you would consider wholesome thoughts. Is that the same as gladdening the mind, or are those two different? Yes, that's exactly gladdening the mind. Okay. Okay, brightening the mind. There is a subtle kind of difference in there, but the point is, is that uh, we we're also not paying attention to just the objects of the mind or what thoughts we're having, but we also pay attention to the the states or the condition that the mind is in. Is the mind dull? Is it sharp? Mm -hmm. uh, right. Is it comfortable? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, is it exalted? Yeah. Is it full of joy? Is it a joyful, yeah. gladdened mind, a brightened up mind, or is it a dull mm -hmm. mind? Right. So, uh, and with proper breathing, breathing deeply, we actually start to change bodily chemistry that helps brighten up the mind. Oh, you've got a visitor. Huh. <laughs> the uh, EMS, I think, go down the street a lot. It shows. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this is the way to begin practice. These three things out of the Eightfold Noble Path run and circle around one another mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And as we do that, we begin to build up some confidence. That confidence is a really big thing. That's the important one. Um, sometimes it's called a vision. An example of that is, is that uh, of Elon Musk. If you know anything about Elon Musk and Tesla, you know that he, he's driven. He knows what he wants, and he's going to go get it, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of confidence that we want to build up, to build up the, I can do this. Wow, I feel so good. Yeah. Okay, I feel good because I feel confident, and I feel like a winner. This is the Sama Sankapa. Yeah. And when we bring those four things together, that brings the mind into a unified state. That confidence that I can do this is the unification. To where the criticism is a disunification. It is finding faults, it's breaking things apart, it's uh, right. being unfriendly. But if we right. start with nurturing and friendly, and then we develop the attitude that I can do this, then that really brings things together. And if we're bringing it together for ourselves, it's hard to not do that for others. Right. When you're in a joyful mood, you said you spread that joy to others. It's hard to really cheer somebody up until, when you're not cheerful yourself. Until you trip again. <laughs> until you trip again on the the uh, competitive aspect. <laughs> right. Exactly. But when you are already the best guy in the room and you know that you're the very best in the room, then you can, um, an example of that, let us say that you've got a situation where one guitar player after another gets up on the stage and shows off. Okay, for whatever, maybe it's a competition or a contest or whatever like that. And when you're on stage, you have the confidence that you're already the best one here. Ain't nobody going to do anything. So you can just have a ball playing your instruments. Get your axe just smoking because you love it. But then when you go down and you sit in the audience, then you don't have to compare what you did with the other guys. You can let the other guy smoke and burn and really show off his talent. And you give him a great big hand because you really like the fact that yeah. he's good. Yeah. Not as good as you are, but he's good. <laughs> <laughs> but if we have the idea that, oh, he's better than I am. Then All right. Oh, poor me, I've got to go practice all, and then we right. begin to get critical ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he might might beat me if he's better than me. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. Okay, so here's the thing, and we can use this kind of as an, um, uh, an equation. You know, the equation, the most uh, important one it would be the equal sign. But we mm -hmm. also have greater than and equal and greater than and less than. We have equivalency. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different signs that mathematics uses. Okay. What we're going to do is stop 
using those symbols in our mind of less than or greater than. Then when we're good at, good at that, when we stop comparing things and just let them be, the next thing that we do is then we remove the sign. Stop comparing all together. Stop having an equation. And instead, the new symbol that we want to put in there is the heart symbol. A loves B. <laughs> Rather than A is less than B or A is greater than B or A equals B. No. A and B are good friends. That's the mathematics that we're going to be doing. Stop comparing ourselves to others. Let him be the very best he could be. He's certainly not as good as me because I'm not comparing anymore. I'm just enjoying what he's doing like I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So and how he's the very best there is, and so am I. <laughs> very best there is. No no comparison needed. How does that work within yourself? If I'm you're okay. comparing this is all right <clears throat> no place to go and nothing to do i've already done the job the job that needed to be done has been done okay sundown time for the bell to ring time for the slave to put down his big sack of cotton and set out on it just take a rest just stop working Stop comparing, stop striving, and just enjoy what a relief it is. But the job is over now, don't have to work. So what was the job to do? The job was to throw the problems away rather than solving them. We think that the problem needs to be solved and then the work has been done. No, the real work to do is to have no problems. And when we have no problems, the work is done. So get into the state of having no problems. Right now, there's no problem. <laughs> right now, there's no place to go and nothing to do, and everything is just hunky-dory. So that's the way that we practice. We practice getting the mind into a really good state. And just like I've been talking here, you can talk yourself into getting into a really good state in only 10 minutes. After you do that, you're ready to go do anything happily. So that's the way that we practice, and we do it several times a day, doing these four things to remember to look, make a change. Remember to look and make a change. To remember to look, to make a change, and then congratulate ourselves for it. Yeah, we could do this. Now we've got, remember, to take a look, make a change, and pat ourselves on the back, congratulate ourselves. And with that, that becomes, by practicing that over and over, mind becomes unified around this, the Pali word is shraddha. Shraddha means confidence. It's translated as faith, but it's not faith because this is evidence-based. We've got solid evidence that I feel good. So this is how we practice, and we can do that in seclusion, get ourselves in a really good state, and then we can go off and do whatever we would. And then when we, the more we're in that state, the more we can be confident that we can do it. <laughs> that we can do the job rather yeah. than, than doing it because we were told to do it and not enjoy it. Now we can actually enjoy it because we got the mind in a state of joy. A state of can do, a state of, yeah, I could write that email. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I can play this guitar piece. Got it, got it wired. Know it. So we can enjoy it. That's what we mean by that confidence, and it, and it needs to be developed. And how do we develop it? By constantly making a change out of the criticism into the nurturing. 
so. Do you think you can practice nurturing yourself? An okay kid. You're all right. No problems. You don't have to do anything to be okay. You're already okay. Or as the Zen people would say, you're already enlightened. Just enjoy the fact that you're already enlightened. What does that mean? That means that you've just lightened up. Criticism. That's heavy. All right. So setting aside the problem of whether it's good enough or not. <laughs> right. That's what we're looking for is enough, sufficient, just enough. Okay. Because if we've got enough, then that's being satisfied. We're satisfied with just enough. That satisfaction then leads to the feeling of success. Safe, secure. Right. And it doesn't matter because we don't have anywhere to go anyway. <laughs> just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Well, Aaron, let's stop now. Do you have any questions about what we've been talking about? Um, no, but I look forward to oh, listening to this again. All right, well, go practice this. Go spend uh, your time. Um, set it up for yourself maybe six times a day. Like when you first wake up in the morning in bed, you can take 10 minutes and just enjoy the heck out of not having to get out of bed yet. Or when you go to bed at night, before you go to sleep, you can practice. Oh, this feels so good. What a wonderful night. I don't even have to sleep. I can just stay here and just enjoy the heck out of just breathing and being happy. So those are okay. times of day. And then there's other times you can figure out at much oh, yeah. or coffee time or Whatever, instead of going and having to smoke, you have a joy. Instead of scrolling on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron. Well, thank you so much. This has been a good talk. I really have enjoyed our, our time together. All righty, Damaro. Good to talk to you. Okay. We'll see you later. Okay. I hope so. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.